Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome to the Ahmed Khan podcast. Um, I would like to introduce our esteemed guest today, which is Dr. Yaqub Ahmed. Dr. Yaqub is a PhD graduate from SOAS University of London. He is an Ottoman historian and he is currently teaching Islamic history at Istanbul University and was a visiting fellow at the Modern Turkish Study Center at Istanbul Sihar University. His research focuses are Muslim intellectual thought in the 19th and 20th centuries, Islamic constitutionalism, identity, nationalism, and collective memory construction. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Yaakov. Thank you very much, Fatim. Well, the topic today that we are going to focus on, inshallah, is the theme is history, a story about the past. And I was very careful with, with the name that I chose because I really feel that history is a story that we tell about what occurred in the past. Um, but before we get into that, you know, history is one of those disciplines that everybody is interested in um, because everybody wants to know their own heritage, their own ancestry. Um, and so if you look at, for example, Muslims, uh, Muslims have... A, a huge interest in wanting to study the Sirah, but also Ottoman history and Mughal history and Abbasid history. And when you begin to study these histories, you begin to develop a level of appreciation for the people before you and how much they have done just for you to even get here. So um, with that, I want to begin with the first question to Dr. Yaqub, which is this question of how do we define history? What is history? Assalamu alaikum and thanks for having me. Um, so, um, yeah, so um, just to address your point uh, initially, which is that it is true um, and that Muslims are interested in, in knowing about history. I think there is a, a general culture around the world of people wanting to know about their past, wanting to know about their identity and so forth. And um, I'm in agreement with that. Where I, I think the question might be need, we might need to redefine the question is, do Muslims study history? Is it a study of, and then you would probably know this better than me in terms of somebody who studied history in university or is still studying history in the university or is still in contact. What I noticed was that um, the number of Muslims in the West in particular who were studying history was very low in re relation to their counterparts and other uh, ethnic minority groups or religious groups or, or so forth. And um, the concern I had was that Muslims by and large and are still focused on the same subjects, right? So that gives an indication of the necessity of having historians. And I wanted to address that first because I've always felt that um, before I can address the question of why history is important or what is history, um, I still feel the need of explaining that we don't have enough historians uh, amongst Muslims who are taking this because they probably see this as a privilege or see this as not a healthy career option or don't see that there's many, there's much money that can be made from it. And this is the interesting thing now. Because um, now going on to your question about what is history, I mean, in many ways, history is the manner in which um, a particular narrative of the past is presented. At times you can say constructed mm -hmm. in a way of um, presenting a moment in the past um, that we can make it more relatable to people today, right? 
Now, the concern I have is that um, a lot of people don't realize that history writing is, is ideologically driven on many occasions. And that could be for many reasons. That could be because the individual is ideologically driven. That could be the institution they are part of are ideologically driven. Or that can be just the discipline of history, which has become a very unique Western enterprise, um, is written within a particular framework um, that has a particular past to it. Um, Ibn Khaldun was correct in making the case that history is usually written by those who are, it's not only Khaldun who said this, but many scholars and even Western scholars, I mean, but, but the people that, that have the power to write that history, mm. right? And since the, what you can say, the, the success of the colonial powers in particular, and since the success of Western hegemony around the world, you sort of see that different cultures and peoples of different societies, whether that be South America, whether that be the indigenous communities of North America, whether that be the people who are Aborigines in Australia, whether that be people in the, Af in the African continent, Muslims, people from the Asian subcontinent, they, they have not been able to present um, a, a, a narrative of the past which reflects them and is true to them from their voices, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the things I always say to my students is there's a difference between writing about the truth and writing fact. Mm -hmm. um, history is about writing about the truth. It's not about writing fact. And this is, and so people say, well, what's the difference? And there is a fundamental difference between fact and truth. A fact is just a piece of information. Um, but truth is uh, the way that we derive a particular opinion on those facts, and we are dependent on the amount of information we have. And so every person who's writing about the past is dependent on the amount of information that's available to them. As a result of that, you can come to the truth without having all the information, but nonetheless, um, it, it requires a lot of um, investigation from the person who's writing that. And so in many ways, the objective of a historian fundamentally should be an attempt to try to write about the truth of the past, which can be relatable for people for today. Now, as a Muslim, um, here's the interesting thing, and I've said this before, which is that the word insan in Arabic, yes, means humanity or people, but actually its root word comes from the idea to forget. Mm -hmm. So the idea is insan is the one who forgot, right? So humanity are the people who forgot. But forgot what exactly is the interesting thing. And here the word insan in this plural form then is not about the person who forgot. It's about the nature of human beings being a people who forget. Mm -hmm. So now when we're people who forget, fundamentally what we, we have to recognize then is that we need to be reminded. Mm -hmm. This is the idea, right? And any person who, who, who would be born today would fundamentally be dependent on the information that's provided them today. And so they are people who have forgotten the past because they no longer have that past. That's when it becomes important for people who write about the past to make that relevant. And in Islam, it's interesting because if we were just going to use it from an Islamic perspective, traditionally, in the narrative, we look at the Sirah, when Jibreel comes to Rasul Salam and um, Rasul Salam hears the verses of the Quran for the first time. What is Allah telling Rasul Salam? He's reminding him 
-hmm. He's reminding not necessarily Rasulullah alone, but mankind that you, in, in, in many ways, that look what I created you from. He's reminding them so that you, you, don't, you don't forget this. And I taught you, you know, how to use the pen. In many ways, fundamentally, what you see here, just in the beginning, is not only the recognition of reminding mankind about the nature of how they were created, but the importance of knowledge, right? And here, then, ilm is important. And fundamentally, ilm is a study of the past in many ways, and history is a study of the past. And any form of knowledge you're going to learn is the study of the past. And in that sense, that's what history is for me. For me, that's how I see it, right? And people will always ask me, like, as a Muslim, like, how do you see history any different? But fundamentally, we are truth seekers to the best of our ability. That's what we're trying to do. Now, on many occasions, it's very possible that we may not be able to know what the truth is because of the lack of information. Okay, then what we can do is we can um, disprove what is not the truth. We can still do that. So, you know, the, we're not trying to find out what is fact all the time, but we're trying to find out, get the closest to the truth in regards to the past because human beings, um, to some degree, are dependent on the knowledge of the past to make sense of who they are today because knowledge is built upon knowledge. The misconception in today's world regarding the, the, the paradigm of progress is the assumption that we have a bowl that's infinite and we just put information into the bowl and we keep building on that knowledge. And that's not necessarily the case. What seems to be more reflective is we are forgetting one form of knowledge and replacing it with another form of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so what you're having here is, um, you know, as I say, these moments of amnesia and holes. And so then people find it very difficult to be able to attach themselves to a particular given past. And for us as Muslims in particular, who are dependent on knowing of the knowledge of the past in terms of the revelation in and of itself and in the life of the one who was the messenger of Allah. And then subsequently, all of those who discursively maintained Islam's relevant up until today, I think it then becomes necessary to, to know all of that as a way of making sense of who you are right now. So it's that collective learning of that past in that sense. And um, I've given you a long-winded answer, and I apologize for but I'm just trying to help you understand. And then people want these snippets, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I will cut these out because I know some people will only want the six, seven minute clip. Um, yeah. But, you know, you touched upon, on, you know, many different questions that I was actually going to ask. Mm. But the, the, the one point that I love is that you said you talked about the insan and how the mm -hmm. insan is the one who forgets. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, the Quran is not a history book, but undeniably contains a lot of history. Yeah. And, you know, one of the verses that I've been contemplating on, um, and there are many variations of this are. Um, haven't you traveled across the land and seen what happened to the previous civilizations? Yeah. And, um, you know, so it's this idea of remembering. And so when I was contemplating this verse, you know, I was looking at the ancient city of Pompeii. Mm -hmm. um, and the ancient city of Pompeii was this, you know, it was this, it was this remarkable city. Um, mm -hmm. But it was a city that was engaged in promiscuity, in adultery, in sin. Mm -hmm. And in one night, you just see the volcano explode and there's, you know, there's a YouTube video on somebody doing, uh, uh, you know, uh, a, a creation of it, and it shows yeah. that at, at 8 a.m. what the city looked like, and then at 8 p.m. Yeah. it's just yeah. here, right? Yeah. Um, and then in, in Jordan we have the city, ancient city of Petra, um, mm -hmm. and then in Saudi Arabia we have Al Hijr, um, where you have remnants of these previous civilizations that yeah. have been destroyed. Um, yeah. And you know, when the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam walked by the Al-Hijr area, 
um, he told the Sahaba that th this is one of the previous civilizations that Allah destroyed. So yeah. take heed of it and remember it. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's definitely, you know, this, this idea of remembrance, the reason why yeah. we engage in history. Um, you know, you touched upon this idea about the STEM world, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, especially, you know, within uh, my friend's circle, um, the majority of us are involved in the STEM circle. Um, mm -hmm. My question is, is what is the relevancy of the humanities or of history in, a, in an age where, the, where everybody is being driven into the STEM field where, um, you know, even at our own university, our own historians are losing their jobs because of lack of funds and they're all going towards the STEM field. So, mm -hmm. you know, what, what is the point of history or the humanities in this world? I mean, the point you made is, is a pertinent one. Um, which is in the field of humanities, one of the things that I learned in particular, and it goes back to the point you made, is that when you look at past civilizations, you're, you're, you're forced to ponder and think. Um, these are signs for you to understand how human beings um, configured their societies, their communities, and are no longer here. In many ways, it's interesting because if you speak to a political scientist, for example, right now, they will make the case that the nation state as a, as a model is the best model that's come down in the history of humanity and it's here to stay. But those of us who are historians are a little bit skeptical of that because we've read continuously throughout history that this is nothing has been a mainstay. No empire, an empire is more powerful than, the, than any, any empire that exists today has, they have come and gone. Not only for in regards to non-Muslims like the Roman Empire and so forth, but even for Muslims in terms of the Umayyads, the Abbasids, the Ottomans, the, Nothing has maintained that. And so what you start to learn in that context is it forces you to think about the nature of human beings, the nature of humanity, the configurations of society, the nature of which how politics operates. And in that sense, um, any given society is only, only as good as the number of intellectuals and thinkers they have in that society. Mm -hmm. So whether you want, so societies require philosophers, societies require um, anthropologists and sociologists and historians to try to, um, in some shape or form, um, provide a, a rounded understanding of the reason of why human beings exist and the sort of like um, more pertinent questions of what it means to be human and what's the idea of what it means to be part of humanity. Now, you're not going to get that from the STEM subjects. The STEM subjects are the everyday day-to-day -day, uh, of science, tech, and so forth, and, and that's fine. But, you know, it's still dependent on some sort of worldview about life. And that's where the humanities kick in. Now, the humanities in the West, that's what it was designed for, um, to try to fill that gap. Unfortunately, in the West, in Western universities in particular, they have now decided that that's not that necessary because these fundamental questions are irrelevant in the West for many people. Those are not the type of questions that people want to ask anymore. In, in Muslim societies, we generally had these sort of frameworks in the madrasa system in regards to the framework of ulum al-din. But even here, we have a problem with many Muslim students who don't want to study ulum al-din. And when they do, they just want to take the, the subjects in which they can get yeses and nos, the ideas of contemplating thinking and so forth, like falsafa philosophy or like history, um, within the curricula of our, our madrasa systems are very few far between. So you can see there's a general problem here. Mm -hmm. uh, and it comes down to how human beings place themselves and how they place value on what it means to be human. And at the moment, value has been placed because we live in a capitalist world on something that can give you something related to that, which is money and security. 
and technological advancement seems to be the way forward. So mm -hmm. we have a problem. Exactly, exactly. You know, one of my favorite quotes from the historian Arnold Toynbee is Toynbee talks about the idea of a creative minority and how mm -hmm. every civilization will come up with problems. And right. it, will, it will be this creative group of people that are going to be able to address it. And if they don't, right. civilization will fall. Right. Um, so uh, last semester, I was taking a class on historiography. Um, mm -hmm. And I was writing a paper on the, on, on, on the coronavirus. And, mm -hmm. and I was trying to argue the importance of history. Mm -hmm. And I said something, something in my research um, left me quite fascinated is, you know, you have WebMD, which is the biggest medical website you know, in the world, and you have their main doctor, and he's interviewing a historian of pandemics, trying to get some answers. And this is early right. on, kind of trying to get some answers about how do these pandemics work? How do right. they usually end? How did people usually respond to them and end them? Um, and what were the fates of these different strategies? So to me, in that, at least in that paper, I argue that this is the relevancy of a historian is that you don't need everybody to be a historian, but you just need that minority to be doing it. Um, and, it and the way I see history in relation, for example, with the STEM field, um, or, or rather I'll say the humanities, is to me the humanities is providing the road for the STEM field to go on. Because without the humanities, you don't know what direction to go on. Without the humanities, you will engage in something like transhumanism or something like pornography or something like a full-on capitalist society and exploitation of others. So to me, this is the importance of the humanities. I'll tell you something that's interesting for me. Like, so you made a very valid point in regards to the pandemic. Um, as a historian, um, because I've consistently read moments of pandemic regarding human beings, when pandemic hit, um, not only were we being asked in regards to what happened in the past, we were also being asked to foreshadow the possibilities of what the um, the sort of like implications of this could be, right? So it's after pan so usually after pandemic you have this moment of pandemic and sickness and, and paranoia, and then after that you generally have forms of economic crisis, uh, within particular societies, governments, and so forth. You get particular governments that may collapse. You get the rise of particular forms of um, aggression towards minorities that live in particular countries because they are blamed for the. The criteria, the reasons why people in these cases, you've, you see contestations between smaller countries and bigger countries um, as a result, what we call the politics of pandemic. This has been consistent throughout human history. Mm. The assumption of modernity was the false assumption was firstly that this would never happen to us. Well, yeah. we're wrong about that because it has happened to us. And this assumption that, you know, we had the answers to everything. Well, actually, we didn't. And somehow, that um, we are different than the people of the past. And actually, when we, as historians, when we're looking at the past, it's fundamentally the same. And when you look in the Islamic past, if you see that Muslims have, a particular, have had a particular methodology of dealing with epidemics and pandemics and plague from the prophetic tradition, of which Muslims are ignorant of, and then when the pandemic hit, especially Muslims in the West, they didn't know how to deal with that in regards to questions to do with the vaccination, questions to do with how to organize, questions to do with we should, whether we should go to the mosque or not, um, uh, family staying in bubbles, they were virtually oblivious to all of this corpus of literature that exists in our culture that's happened consistently. And for us as Ottoman historians, we've seen it on many occasions in Ottoman history because Istanbul was a city that was often hit by plague mm. um, and often um, it was quarantined. 
So this is not the first time, and this is happening in places like Cairo, this is happening in Egypt. World War I was a typical example of this. And even in Europe, they have the, uh, the notion of the Spanish plague. So this is not something that is alien to them. So it goes back to my point about human beings forgetting, you mm. know, and it's, yeah. they forget because it's not relevant to them. And that's why then people need to accept forward and say, well, hang on a minute, you know, this is what's happened in the past. And in that sense, that's why then, once again, it's, historians are those people that remind you, you know, and they remind you based on knowledge that is of something that has happened and we bring it back to the table. And I think that's necessary. Mm. And again, you know, I, I love how you keep tying back in this point of human beings being in a state of forgetfulness. Yeah. Right? Um, the beginning of Surah NBS says, the closer and closer the human being is coming to their reckoning, yet they're in a state of heedlessness. Yeah, um, exactly. So we do find ourselves in that state. And because of that state, um, you know, these, these challenges, you know, they say people who don't study history will just repeat it, right? Um, not, not only that, look, I'll give you an example, like, um, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but no um, when we do forms of ibadat, for example, and what do we say when we do, like, the remembrance of Allah, dhikr of Allah Ta'ala, to constantly remember it. Now, it uh, might sound bizarre if I said to you, it's because people may forget, but people do forget. I mean, if you look in the West, people are rejecting the idea that they have been created. This is something that, mm. you know, is something which is irrelevant to them. And so what we do within religious communities, in all sorts of religious communities, we have practices of rituals, which are constant reminders to maintain a particular idea of what it is that we, we belong to. So you pray five times a day, it's a constant reminder. You do um, wudu, continuously to remind you of this particular scripture. You particularly do um, tasbih and dhikr, remembering Allah Ta'ala. You wear a particular attire to link you to the people of the past in the way that you dress and so forth. This continued need to, to, to remember is infused in religious communities. And in that sense, it's continuously linked to the past. Now, if scholars did not look to the texts of the past and then everything would go and that's part of the problem. So to maintain that, um, those, those constant reminders are necessary. And Allah Ta'ala says that continuously in the Quran, reminded us not only in terms of worship and people of the past, but of himself, mm -hmm. reminded us of who Allah is continuously because human beings have a, a tendency of forgetting and recognizing his, how, how magnificent he is in that sense. And so um, I think as a Muslim historian, that's one of the things I've definitely come to appreciate, which is the need to be rooted in the past and not assuming that the past is something which is a waste of time and not to assume that we as people today are far more superior than the people of the past. We're just different. We mm -hmm. have fundamentally our fitr is the same. We have the same desires. We have the same instincts. We have the same tendencies of good and bad. Uh, we eat, we sleep, um, you know, and so forth. We're violent. Mm -hmm. What's changed is the tech around us to some degree and this misconception that we are on the road to progress, which is flawed in and of itself. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And, you know, you know, the more I begin to study history, the more I realize that, um, you know, there are other ways of living than the way that we've just been living. Um, right. One example is um, something here in the West that we consider an inherent truth that you can't even question is yeah. this idea that every government must be a democracy. Right. Um, and yeah, slow, as I continue to read and I begin to be exposed to different types of regimes, um, yeah. different, different formats, I'm able to realize that, okay, there are other ways a society can run. Um, yeah. 
the, the question I wanted to talk about with you is um, when we look at the Quran and we look at mm -hmm. history, um, what is the relation between the two? For example, uh, the most often quoted story in the Quran is the story of Moses salam, and Fir'aun, uh, a Pharaoh. Um, is this a story that is this a story that it's something we just tell you know, our kids about when we go to sleep? Or is this an archetype that we find throughout history? Because Ibn Khaldun, um, the, the, you know, and you know, the one thing about Ibn Khaldun, as you mentioned, is that he is recognized in the West, which is very rare when you have a, you know, a Muslim social scientist who is widely recognized. And um, you know, we began our historiography class with Ibn Khaldun. Um, so he is very important, but Ibn Khaldun, um, you know, he talks about, you know, this, uh, the, about these archetypes, um, which he is again, deriving from the Quran. But I wanted to ask you, um, you know, are these, you know, how important are these archetypes? Um, are we still finding them in today's society? Yeah. I mean, I think, in, like I told you before, the point is, is that as human beings, we really haven't changed in that sense. And I mean, why are these archetypes in the Quran in the first place is because um, who knows human beings are in sound better than Allah Ta'ala. And so the need to remind us of people that, that were beloved to him and going through particular experiences as human beings, as an indication that this can happen again. And mm. one of the things I've always found fascinating is not in only in regards to um, the, the types of narratives that Allah Ta'ala mentions in the Quran, but Sirah itself. And the necessity to, to learn this in a way of human beings understanding that Allah Ta'ala, he, he interacted with his Anbiya in a particular way. And, but what you generally see is that they are working in the field of and interacting with a particular reality which we can learn lessons from. It's not, in that sense, the, the charges of being abused by political authority, the, the difficulties of people not listening, the ideas of calling to the truth, the, 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 the need to, to do rituals and practices, the, the hardship of betrayal and, and murder, and the need to be morally upright and ethical and so forth. I mean, the, these, are, these are consistent in the Quran in terms of the narratives that we see of people. And this is consistent with Rasul Salman. So in that sense, you know, um, we are people of ishtihad. We look at the current realities and we make those as, uh, um, adaptations but nonetheless the fundamental principles of people of people of authority of people of responsibility and people of power people who are considered prophets but are considered as shepherds mm -hmm. and who are going to you know um, um safeguard their flock which are human beings so these are all necessary things that people need to know about i think there is a i would say a a a sort of deficit in the understanding of Muslims by and large of what it means to be a shepherd in the capacity of what it means to be a leader mm. and how to safeguard your community and how to be responsible towards your community and how to look after not just your family and your, your loved ones and your local community, but a community by and large. Um, and a lot of these skills of, of being an Imam to some degree uh, have never been explained, I, I believe, aptly enough to create a new generation of thinkers, leaders, and, and men of and women of responsibility. I, I think there's a mis something's gone missing here. And that's because that's not the historical past that we look at. Mm -hmm. um, we seem to negate that historical past to some degree. And I think that's important. Um, and we draw inspiration from people from the past. We draw inspiration from 
we draw inspiration from the magnificent things that they did and the uh, great achievements that they have achieved and assume that we can achieve that. And at the same time, the mistakes they made and the difficult and the hardships they went through. And I think that's necessary. And Allah Ta'ala shows that in regards to his beloved. And so, you know, we're not then uh, distinct from that. We can achieve that. It just means that we have to put in the hard work and effort. Um, you know, it's, it's strange when you look at Western societies and Muslims also get caught up. So you look at superhero movies, you know, so the Avengers, One Division, and so forth, you know, even in Japan, Attack of Titans and so forth. There is a need to create an imagination of a, a particular um, a mythology surrounded around um, human beings achieving the unachievable. It's necessary for people to, to feel that. And superheroes in the West, in some degrees, become a reflection of that as a medium, as a, as a way of still encouraging people and motivating them. Allah Ta'ala does that far more beautifully in the Quran, and he talks about it of people that existed in the past. I think that's something we should take, you know, some, something from. I think it's important. Mm -hmm. You know, you, uh, you bring this excellent idea again that, um, you know, as human beings, we might have evolved technologically um, in the STEM fel uh, in the STEM fields, um, mm. but you know also I, I, there's still a certain degree that you know the, we haven't beaten the past in. For example, the pyramids are still something yeah. we're struggling to grapple with. How did these previous civilizations? Um, and you know one of one of the most barbaric statements um, is that when it comes to the pyramids in Egypt, um, many people, a lot of, but it's typically white supremacists claim that you know aliens created it because there's no way. The Africans could have created it because we are inherently superior to them. Um, but I mean, you find the same thing in Mexico as well with their pyramids. But you know, this idea that um, you know, okay, although we we might have uh, we might have increased you know our, uh, and improved our STEM fields morally, you know, the, you know, we might we might even be seeing you know uh, a couple steps back. Um, and it's really through a foundational text, whether you know whether it's a Bible, whether it's a Quran. Um, you know, many of these great texts that, that give you truth that you're talking about, that truth in morality, but also that truth in history of knowing where you came from. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's the really valid point you make. I mean, it's not just in regards to the building of the pyramids and so forth. Let's look at medication. I mean, some of the best doctors um, in, or practitioners of medicine in particular were Muslim scholars of the past. And for them, prevention was better than cure. And we have, um, you know, excessive works on what to eat, what not to eat, how to eat, how to train, how to safeguard the body, and so forth. This gluttonous behavior that we have today of just complex foods being shoved onto a plate never existed in the past. And, and so when people got sick, and because a lot of analysis for every sickness there's a cure, people would find, um, you know, something in nature that would deal with that. And in that sense, what you start the herbal medicines and medicinal mechanisms, you know, um, drinks and whatnot, what you learn then is that these forms of practice are forgotten, right? Mm -hmm. in, in the over sort of loading of one form of knowledge, there is an absence of another form of knowledge, which, mm -hmm. uh, of knowledge which we think is irrelevant and is very relevant to us in that sense. And this is the, once again, the arrogance of the, the current period, which is the assumption that human beings are in the past were somehow backwards and that we have improved. I wouldn't say we've improved as human beings. You know, we've just built knowledge upon knowledge to get to a particular technological advancement that didn't exist in the past. But to assume that people were not intelligent in the past, the pyramids is an example of that. Forget that. I mean, we talk about the Ottoman mosques that are built. It's fascinating to see that 
the current mosques that are being built in Turkey, for example, with concrete and cranes and so forth, um, they still don't stand anywhere near close to the mosques that were built in the past in the Ottoman period. And these were people who carried rocks and stones and so forth. And still the number one architect in, in, in the history of this region is Mimar Sinan, no doubt about that. So that tells you something. I give an example, Yildiz Jami, which is the mosque, in, uh, the, the Sultan Abdul Hamid's mosque, took two years to build. Took a few years ago, they restored it. It took them four years to restore it. So um, in, in many ways, we have a, a lot of technological advancement, which has made us faster. It doesn't necessarily mean it's made us better. And as you make the point, the cases of morality, the constructions of society, um, the sort of like Hellenistic behavior, debauchery and so forth, this is not new. This has happened in the past. And, and, and this will continuously happen. Exactly. And, you know, you know, whenever, you know, and, and I try to have my, my history education, um, I try to keep it quite diverse um, mm -hmm. because each civilization has things that you can take with it. Um, um, even if they weren't Muslim, right? Uh, one of my favorite hadith says, um, that wisdom is the lost property of the believer. Wherever they find it, it is, is theirs. Um, and I think this is greatly manifested, for example, in Ibn Sina's canon of medicine, where he's just compiling works from China, from India, from Africa, from Europe, everywhere. He's just trying to take that wisdom and put it together. Um, so, um, you know, it, it was great hearing that about the architecture of the Ottoman mosques and how still, you know, they're still trying to question, um, you know, how they made it. Um, and if you look at the great wonders of the world today, how many of them are 20th century or 21st yeah. century? Yeah, totally. Right? So there, there, there is this, there is this ask, and in terms of morality, you know, you know, when I study, you know, the Chinese civilization, the Indian civilization, the European, the Muslim, they all knew about what we call now the seven deadly sins and how these were sins. Yet today we have taken these, yet today our vices have become virtues and our virtues have become vices. Yeah, so exactly. in the past, our worship of, uh, of Allah was a virtue. Today, now it's found upon and it's become a vice. Yeah. In the past, people knew that you, were, you, 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 were, you went on a spiritual journey to control your desires, to control yeah. today, that's become uh, a virtue with this over hypersexualization society. So um, this idea of, of, of improving in, in all regards is a false claim. And when we look at you know, the, the moral arguments in specific, we begin to see that we're not even going backwards because back the people behind us weren't even doing it. We're, we're going in a complete opposite direction. And, yeah. completely. and this is the interesting point, which is that um, growing up, um, I was always taught that the, the full uh, sort of like acknowledgement of knowledge cannot be acknowledged without the understanding of Allah Ta'ala's relationship with that knowledge that you've attained. Now, when you take something like Allah, so you say something like, which is Meta, which is Allah Ta'ala, is the only reality and you take him out and you put him to a side and he's now placed here any form of knowledge that you're going to attain even as elevated as it may be there's something problematic about that because how are you going to correctly apply that knowledge and the application of knowledge is not simply um you know um it, it, to to take information and to use it there's a morality behind it there's an ethics behind it there's a there's as we say an other culture behind it there's a particular interaction behind it. There's a whole host of these things which shape the human being in their being in terms of how they ought to be uh, in regards to themselves, in terms of their relationship with themselves, their relationship with Allah, their relationship with their spirit, 
the relationship with their family, their neighbors, their society, the community, and the world by and large, you take that out, your knowledge is very restricted in what it has. And it's, it's good that you make that point about wisdom because that's exactly what we're trying to create. How many people can you say in Western society that these are people of wisdom? It's very rare we would hear that. Like, yeah, indeed, these are people of wisdom. And th this is something that is very strong in the, in the Islamic tradition, that we are looking for people of hikmah, people of wisdom who can guide us, who can take the knowledge and apply it in the correct manner that take all the facets into account that are helpful for the human being, not only in terms of that activity, but in relation to everything that's important for them. And I think that's a concern I have, which is that in, in the West, even Muslims are um, sometimes devoid of wisdom. Mm. Um, they have a lot of knowledge. And one of the interesting things we see with these, a lot of these YouTube uh, videos that I see on, 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 on social media, and sometimes I get concerned, is very rarely do I look up and say, you know what, alhamdulillah, this is a person of wisdom. What I see is that this is a person who wants to create content. And that, that's a concern I have, which is that we, we, we're churning out information every week as a way of um, facilitating our subscribers and our followers and the likes that we need. And some people may say that's a little bit harsh, um, but nonetheless, um, wisdom requires sometimes drawing back. It requires coming off those platforms. It requires uh, years of contemplation and thinking and, and, and introspection. And that's what true scholars did. And I think that's what we need. We need people of wisdom and it's hard now, but that's what we should be aiming for. Mm -hmm. No, no, and that, that, that's a beautiful point. I mean, you know, this idea of um, follower chasing, um, yeah. you know, which has been created by social media um, has, has led to exactly what you're saying. I mean, you yeah. know, you know, for those who know me personally, they know I've been trying to get this project started for many months, but mm -hmm. I was always trying to make sure my intentions were pure. And yeah. when I felt my intentions were not pure, I said I could not start a project like this, right? Because right. there's only one reason why I want to do something like this always for everything that I try to do in my life is to please Allah, to please yeah. God. Um, but again, you know, when you remove that, you know, then you become a slave to pride. Um, yeah. Where it, you know, you're just coming, you just want to, um, uh, and you find this throughout history, people who are wanting to boost their ego um, mm -hmm. and what that leads to them and their civilization. I mean, yeah. Pharaoh was somebody who thought he was God, right? The Quran says, that he established yeah. himself on the earth thinking he was god and ultimately that ego led him to being drowned um yeah. so like we mentioned these archetypes of history you know they continue to find themselves over and over again um the last question i wanted to ask you um okay. on your paper on yaqeen institute you talked about this notion of islamicizing history yeah um, i was wondering if you could comment on that um so there is a just quickly to touch on the previous point and then respond which is but there was a Western academic by the name of Neil Postman. He was an yeah. expert on the idea of television in particular. And I was debating with a, a few friends of mine today only. And Postman complains about the, 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 the in, solid information for, for society would, becomes diluted when it's introduced within the format of entertainment, right? That real knowledge um, requires um, serious effort, serious study, and serious forms of intellectualization. When it becomes something which is mass produced, and these are what these technologies are doing to some degree, they allow them for the facilitation of mass production, everyday production, that um, to some degree it dilutes the, um, the seriousness of, of that knowledge because it becomes couched in the need for people to want to be entertained. 
And so this is the concern I have as Muslims. Our interest is not to entertain people. Our interest is to make sure that in this ummah, there are enough people of knowledge and wisdom who can safeguard the interests of their society, which means that going back to our earlier point, why we need people to go into the humanities and, and study the humanities, not because we need to be on social media. There will always be people on social media who give their opinion for whatever reason, but because of that serious study for serious information where we invest in people, this is what Rasulullah did with his Sahaba. He invested in them as people. One of the fascinating things about Rasulullah is he wasn't interested in building businesses or institutions or so forth necessarily. The first focus he did is let me invest in my Sahaba. Let me invest in my family. Let me invest in people. And then after he died, people ran with the idea of Islam. It was the people who were institutions in this sense, right? And so this is something which is important. And I feel very, like, I'm not convinced, this is my personal opinion, that that can be done over the mediums that we're using regarding social media, which is a part of the entertainment industry in that sense. I think something far more focused needs to happen within our communities in that sense. Now, the second part of your point, your question, the main point about the Islamization of knowledge, there is a misconception somehow that the, that the only way that we can study history is to study it within the secular framework and that that secular framework is the only form of objectivity. I'm not convinced by that. My Islamic principles have always taught me to be upright. My Islamic principles have always taught me to look for the truth, search for the truth, uh, to be thorough. Um, because in the end of the day, there's an accountability, not simply based on the fact of what people will say to me today, but what Allah expects. And so the Islamization of knowledge, the misconception is that the Islamization of knowledge has to mean that I have to use Islamic terminology in the text itself. It's not simply that. It's the mechanism in which I produce information, right? So I give an example. I was at a conference once, and one of the academics said, you know, um, you know the great thing about being historians is the people who are writing about are dead. So, you know, in the end of the day, we're not going to be held accountable by them. Mm. And then I stuck my hand up. I said, that's the difference between you and I. Mm. I mean, the concern I have is the people I'm writing about are the people who are dead. And they will hold me to account in that context. And so I have to be twice as upright in regards to writing about them. Because on the day of judgment, the last thing I want is a person saying, he lied about me, documented it, put it in paper for the end until the day of judgment. Like, what am I going to say to Allah? This is why the scholars would then write, and Allah knows best, to absolve yourself from that responsibility that in, in many ways, you're just trying to do the best of your ability. Now that framework and that mindset and, and that sort of like, um, I think um, ethical position is missing in secular academia. Um, secular academia at the moment is being driven by careerism, by driven by print capitalism. It's being driven by um, budgetary needs, the, the, the needs of a particular department. There's an overemphasis on producing pu uh, publications and books and presentations, but um, the, the pursuing of truth for the sake of truth, for um, the sake of humanity, I, I don't see much of that anymore. And so in that sense, this Islamization culture is necessary. It's not necessarily simply down to text itself, but whole ethos in the way that we operate as Muslims, in the way that we we interact with um, knowledge um, as people, I think needs to be put back onto the table. And I think maybe that was a, a point people sometimes missed in my Yakin Institute article. Mm. Um, there was an assumption that I was talking about, um, you know, um, just simply infusing Islamic terminology on the text itself. But there's a whole mannerism. You know, Rasulullah was the walking Quran, right? Mm -hmm. So when he, he embodied what that was. 
And that's what we, we need in that sense. Um, and as Muslim scholars writing about the Islamic past, um, we have to be braver in claiming and reclaiming our Islamic past because it belongs to us. And we should be writing in a way, and I believe this, we should be writing in a way which is uh, relatable for Muslims in their capacity as Muslims. Mm-hmm. When you, we mentioned Ibn Khaldun. So the way Khaldun was writing, he was writing for Muslims mm-hmm. in their capacity. Was Lana, that non-Muslims can read his work, not a problem. They do, do read that, just like how I read Bernard Lewis. But mm-hmm. I shouldn't have a fear of writing for Muslims and feeling somehow that this work is not worthy. I mean, my Yaqeen article was written in that capacity. It was written in the capacity for Muslims, from a Muslim, from the Islamic worldview, regarding the Islamic culture, and um, Muslims read it and non-Muslims read it. And I'm okay with writing in that medium and style. I think that medium and style is necessary. Mm-hmm. I think the concern I have is sometimes when Muslims go into academia, they, they, re- they reject that style. They only write in one style of writing, which is the academic format. And I think this thought is just as necessary. So this is what I meant. Mm-hmm. No, no, definitely. You know, this idea, you know, I, I think academia, um, you know, has its own paradigm that people mm-hmm. often forget. They think it's, it's yeah. objective, but, you know, the, the, the underpinnings of it, you know, whether it's secular, whether it's materialistic, um, very much have an influence um, on the way that history is told. And we find that in not only in history, but in other, um, in, you know, for example, in psychology, you know, you know, we're honoring right now Dr. Malik Badri, you know, the father mm-hmm. of Islamic psychology. Yeah. Um, but, you know, when he was writing about Islamic psychology in academia, you know, he was mocked, he was made fun of. Um, yeah. But now, you know, finally, you know, the fruits of his labor um, have now come. You know, Dr. Rania Awad is now teaching an Islamic psychology class at Stanford University, right? Mm-hmm. But it's because you have those people who are willing to push the narrative. But in history in particular, it's very problematic. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, you, you know, when, when you read about when, when Sirah, when the life of the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, is taught in academia, the question that they're always asking themselves is how did Islam spread so rapidly, mm-hmm. right? And I remember I was in my class and I was with my uh, professor and I said, um, and just a couple of days ago, uh, uh, another Muslim sister is taking the same class with that professor. And she asked the same question. What if there's a possibility that it spread so rapidly because God wanted it to spread rapidly and that God was with them? And he said, no, 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 it couldn't have been like that. And then when you ask about, okay, um, uh, when, they, when they speak on prophecy, you know, astaghfirullah, they will say, oh, you know, there might, he might have had hallucinations, astaghfirullah. Um, but I asked him, what about the possibility that he's, you know, he's, sallallahu alayhi wa was actually a prophet? And they outright denied that completely. Right, because they're stuck in that materialistic framework. And well, I'll give you something even more interesting. Sure. So I remember, and this was a slip of a tongue, where I said in a presentation, and Allah says in the Quran, and I was reprimanded for that. Wow. I was reprimanded because um, that was an objective. What I was supposed to say was the Quran says. Yeah. And so somebody reminded me that listen, okay, you know, you're you're imposing your religious belief upon, and so then I. I turned back to the person who said that claim and said, so who was the author of the book? I said, it's, it's unbelievable that in acad- academia, we often cite the authors of books that we're writing. And here, you are telling me that I have to discard the author of this book. Mm-hmm. And what's intriguing is they will say things like, the truth claims of the Quran. 
it, it cannot be a truth and a claim at the same time. That doesn't make sense. That's an oxymoron in of itself. Mm. So what is it that you're doing now? Okay, I'm willing to accept if people will say, you know, we reject that. Then just be open about it. But I don't reject that. And there's a billion of us out there. And I'm writing to those people. And I'm confident enough to stand in my capacity as a Muslim and say that. And so, um, you know, you, you talk about Professor Badri. I was very fortunate, alhamdulillah. I was one of the last people to meet him in Turkey before he went back to Malaysia. And he and I were sitting down. And um, he was telling me about the last projects that he was working on and so forth. And he was telling me about his interaction with Malcolm X and things like that. Which is, and, you know, he, I mean, he, he, he studied with Maududi and Malcolm X. And it, it was just mind-blowing for me to, to hear this from somebody. And we, we sit there and we, we, we laughed about it. And he made this point, which was that in the field of psychology, Allah Ta'ala is rejected. Um, when he speaks to Muslim psychologists and somebody will say, I had a particular dream. Muslim psychologists themselves don't know what to say about that. Mm -hmm. And yet we have a huge long tradition in Islam regarding dream culture, right? So what you see is that um, uh, there's a sort of embarrassment of being Muslim. Um, and what happens with that sense of embarrassment is that you get stripped away of who you are. And before you know it, then what does it mean to be Muslim? It means very little in that sense. And so, yes, one may argue that you don't need to be overtly Muslim in Western societies and so forth. Okay, fine. We can negotiate that. But I still believe that Muslims need to carve out a space for them to be able to speak in their capacity as a Muslim as an alternative space, because Islam is an alternative. And um, I think this is um, being taken away from us. And in that sense, you start to realize that um, to some degree, um, Western academia has a strong secular component, which is almost, I, I joke, but I have a seriousness, this is a form of Western intellectual imperialism mm. uh, within the academic structure. And these models are promoted around the world as the given structure. And any alternative is seen as secondary or useless. And I think we need to be careful of that. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And it's like, to me, you know, you know their, their, their secular uh, materialism is, is kind of like their golden calf. That exactly. it cannot be challenged at all. Exactly. If you want to challenge it, you have you cannot publish on our journal articles. You cannot exactly. speak at our universities, and you have to go right. elsewhere. Um, so, well, um, you can't use the word Allah. Did you know that? That in the um, there, there are many journals, uh, Islamic studies journals, where the word God is replacing Allah, which is bizarre. We all know who Allah is, and it's an Islamic studies journal. Why can't I just write the word Allah? No, that's not. That's the God of Muslims. And it's intriguing how this becomes reduced because in many ways, as, as those of us who are Muslim, you know, Rasulullah came to say that the name of, the proper name of Allah is Allah. Like that's his proper name. Mm -hmm. And in any other, you, you would say Shiva, Buddha, you use the proper name. But in, 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 in here, you don't use the proper name. You say God. Now, fine, I, I understand why a lot of Muslims might be reluctant of being that aggressive, but I find it interesting, mm -hmm. even here, that if, it's stripped away of its agency by not being able to use its name. And this is interesting, you know. Muslims have for a long time struggled to just say Prophet Muhammad. And even in brackets, if they put peace be upon him, mm -hmm. um, then they're seen as being like, you know, these, these biased crazies who, you know, so we have to omit that just so that we can be perceived as being objective. What difference does it make to the reader? Just continue reading. Mm -hmm. So you can see that, that that is concerning in that sense. Exactly. It's definitely concerning. Um, and... Um... You know, I, I've definitely had my moments at the undergraduate level where there's there's been certain slips, but I've just I've just kind of gone through with it because I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah. what are you going to do? 
right? I mean, but look, this is the interesting thing. So like as an undergrad, you, you get disciplined and you become conditioned into being a particular way and you're conditioned by both the left and the right to a certain degree. You're either um, yeah. smashed by the right out of fear or humiliated by the left in a particular way. And what's in you, by the time you get to my position, you're from academic and you go to academics conference and so forth there's a particular expectation that i must behave and toe the line and uh, you know just like a good slave boy and this is what i find interesting in the sense that and this is the field of, of islamic studies ottoman history it's islamic studies and th how dare i even speak within this framework that that can be instructive towards muslims it's not how it should be that's not what history is history is the sort of like objective understanding of the past and what's even more interesting is when i speak of the muslims of the past by trying to give them a voice of how they spoke about themselves mm. even that is rejected so that i find interesting and so it's becoming an interesting battle in that sense mm -hmm. you know and, and I, th I think i think this all ties back to the same topic that we're trying mm -hmm. to talk about is that history as it's taught today um as it's found in the books right because yeah. you know I remember before, you know, before, you know, I got into the realm of historiography, I thought that as long as I picked up a history book and that it, it had some sort of relevancy, some sort of credibility, I could cite it and that it was true, right? But as you begin to, as you begin to see that, um, you know, you'll find these types of books on every topic. Uh, I love this history. point that you've made, by the way. I'll tell you why, because you know how many times I meet Muslims who say, I read this in a history book. You know, it's like my mum when she would say, Yaakov, look at this. Like, what is this? She goes, I saw this on YouTube. I said, Mum, it's, it's what do you mean? She goes, it's on the internet. It must be true. He said, no, that's not how it operates. And so many young Muslims I meet that said, I read a history book, but who was it written by? I don't know. Well, what was the name of the author? What was the background of the author? What was the ideology of the author? When was the book written? What was the framework in which they were operating? In? These are all important. And so what you start to realize is that um, history is written in a particular way from a particular paradigm, from a particular worldview of which um, we are secondary actors, if that, you know what I mean? And so um, I say this openly, um, the Ottoman studies in particular is a Western enterprise. Mm -hmm. um, what, we, what I mean by that is that um, most Western universities will have Ottoman studies departments. Um, they won't have Umayyad studies departments or Abbasid studies or Seljuks or Babel or Mughal, but by and large, you'll see most good universities who have large Ottoman studies departments. It was a Western enterprise in many ways that Ottoman studies was in some ways created in Western universities and maybe in the Turkish Republic. But you won't see Ottoman studies taught in Muslim seminaries at mm -hmm. all. You go to any Muslim institution and you see, I'll, I've been to many Muslim centers around there who don't teach Ottoman studies, who don't have Ottoman historians. 600 years of history is just absent when we go back to this, mind, this point I made about amnesia. This doesn't exist, why not? Why, why have Muslims not invested in this? And, and it's only now because of television and particular TV shows and the popularity of Turkey as a nation. And Muslims now start to interact more and more works in regards to Islamic history that there's this recognition of that. But, um, you know, this is something we need to recognize. So, so the majority of works we read on Ottoman studies are written in the English medium for a particular audience that think in a particular way. And as Muslims, there's no wrong, there's no problem writing in that way, but we should have multiple ways of writing. We can be far more dynamic and creative mm -hmm. if we want to be. Exactly. And you know, you know, you know what this reminds me of? This reminds me of our discussion on Sultan Abdul Hamid II 
And mm -hmm. when I asked, you know, is there a good book about him in the English language? And every book that you mentioned, you said had, had criticisms because yeah. the best ones were all written in, uh, in, in the Turkish language. But yeah. you know, that's one of the most influential individuals in the 20th century. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you know, when, 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 that, when that many resources um, do not even exist for me, I'm going to turn to the ones that are available to me. And then yeah. that's my understanding of Sultan Abdul Hamid then. Yeah, and what's interesting, I mean, the most, I, I think from my understanding, in the Western, in Western languages, the, there's only been one biography of Abdul Hamid II, and it's by Francois Georgeon, written in French, so it's not even written in English, you know, it's, it's just bizarre, and um, in, in many ways, um, in Turkey, obviously, there's an obsession of Abdul Hamid II, so there's a lot of works on Abdul Hamid, even those biographies can be challenging, whatnot, but the fact is that there's no access for Muslims, you know, mm -hmm. of a, a figure um, which um, is so instrumental in many ways in the 19th, 20th century regarding Islam. And yet we have very little access to this. And there's a dependency. This is the point which is we go back to now, the importance of the historians. There is a dependency. And just like there is a, you know, it, when I, I speak to people who say they want to have a female doctor or like, you know, or they want a Muslim doctor or they want a doctor that, that, that understands their culture, understand, okay, it's the same thing with historians. We, we don't have a pool of people. And it's funny because in the last year or so, so many people are calling me up in regards to talking about Ottoman studies. And it's because they feel like there's an absence of Muslim Ottoman historians who they can turn to, who they can trust. And the trust factor is important for us in terms of relaying information in that sense. And this is another thing why I think there is a need um, to encourage more and more Muslims to go into the humanities who can offer and provide valuable knowledge about the past and, and religion and tradition uh, where it can be relatable and trustworthy for people. I think this is a problem. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And, and you, know, you know, just to wrap up, you know, all these things are tying back to our central theme about history not being objective, um, right. at least as it's being taught nowadays, um, that there is a worldview that it's being taught within Mm -hmm. um, and that the world, the dominant worldview today is this secular materialistic way of looking at the world um, in which God does not exist. And with mm -hmm. that, and people think that's just a tiny thing, that it's just, oh, it's just, okay, remove the God components. Like you're removing a whole framework, a whole yeah. paradigm. And when that happens, that's when you begin to see problems such as these. And in reality, the only way to really address it is to create our own institutions and to take yeah, it in so. manner. Yeah, I mean, I, I've said this before, and I won't hesitate to say this again. Um, so European, I mean, Western academia, whether it's written from a, you know, you know, even like Marxist. So if we look at capitalism and communism in particular, these are still European ideas. Hmm. And they came from a European secular worldview, right? They were just two different forms of um, um, ideologies which were clashing amongst each other in a particular way. But still, when you look at the way that you studied historiography, where you look at the the, the way that Marxist works have influenced the writing of history, for example, even today, in that sense, where you don't have, and, and this is embraced within Western literature, and Western academia, but you won't see the embracement of the Islamic school of writing about history that's outright rejected. In many ways, you see, and I believe this, is that um, the, um, secularism in the way that is documented within um, the writing of knowledge is intellectually violent. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a very intellectually violent form in, in the sense that it's it, it, there's an imposition that it makes and it doesn't, it's unwilling to compromise with anything. And 
it strips people away of any internal agency they may have of writing about themselves in, in their particular framework. So, I mean, it's, I mean, it sounds bizarre, but as a Muslim who writes about Islamic history and writes about those people of the past who are relatable to me in regards to my culture, history, and tradition, of which Allah is a, is a major component, the fact that I have to strip all of that away leaves me with what exactly? It leaves me, not only are the people I'm writing about seen from the Western gaze, but I myself have been reduced to an object of that Western gaze. So both the one who's written about and the one who's writing has been stripped away of any agency of who they are. Mm -hmm. What is this? And this is why the Yakin Institute article in that sense, I was trying to write in a different style um, that was relevant for Muslims. I really wanted to make that um, push that home. And I, when I first showed the first draft to a couple of people, they were surprised by that style. Why are you starting with the Quran? Why are you starting like this? Why are you starting with the Bismillah? What are you doing? Like, you know, we're trying to create a platform where this can be um, seen as an academic paper. Um, when I gave the first draft to a couple of friends, and I was like, no, this is what we're going to, this is what we're going to sit with. And alhamdulillah, in many ways, Muslims resonated with it. They said, you know, we appreciate this. This is, this is fresh for us. And um, I met Muslim academics who, who said the same. So, you know what, fair play to you for, for putting that out there. Um, and I hope that we can create an alt space for ourselves where we can do that in terms of our own sort of like intellectual sort of like product. Mm -hmm. And in, in the, the thing that I hope, um, you know, in, in my example with the Islamic psychology, is that eventually it becomes recognized even in Western yeah. academia. That's yeah. what I hope. Um, because these are great institutions. And rather than trying to, you know, break them down and create new ones, you know, we would love if the possibility emerges to work within them. Um, you know, in the West, my, my, my argument mainly in the West is you don't have to like what I'm saying, but just let me say it. Hmm. You know, you, you, I, it's fine, but let me at least exist and to say it. Um, you know, you want a diversity of thought, you want diversity of opinions, you want diversity of different cultures, then let me speak in my capacity of how I see it. That's how I'm going to train it. Um, but there's a rejection of that. It, and this is, it's understandable. That's fine. I understand it's rejected, but then at least be honest about it mm. and say, you know, and there is a tacit acceptance that um, it's not objective. You know, there's multiple subjectivities in that sense. Mm. And, uh, you know, you realize that while you're writing, like, okay, there's the Marxist school, there's this school, there's the Frankfurt school. So you start to realize, oh, okay. But fundamentally what you see is it all still sits under the framework of secularism. And as a result of that, that's why it's all encompassed and accepted. Um, we don't want religious people writing about their religious past. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that can definitely open up a door um, that uh, we don't want as well, where there's no restrictions. So, yeah. um, you know, the, the main point, again, uh, that, we're, that, we, that, we, that we try to convey in this episode is that there are many different ways to tell history. Um, yeah. And, you know, you, know, you, know, you know, one of my favorite sayings is history is his story. Yeah, yeah. Um, right. Is 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 a person's understanding of history and their narration of it. So, um, if you have any last thoughts, please share, Doctor Yakub. Yeah, I mean, look, even in that point about his history being his story, um, it's a, well, probably we, we might get attacked from people saying that we've now turned this into sort of a, a ideological thing. But it's intriguing because, um, in many ways, as I told you before, history is about writing the truth. And the truth is still framed within a particular viewpoint of a person writing 
from their perspective. Um, in that sense, um, all history writing is always going to be from a particular perspective. It's always going to be couched in something. Yeah. Um, we have this uh, idea that, you know, the, the idea of the elephant, which is somebody, three blind men holding the elephant, one's holding the leg, one's holding the trunk, one's on the ear. They're all holding the elephant, which is the truth in that sense. But it's just different parts of it. But what we're trying to do is, uh, the more historians we have, um, then collectively we can start to put more pieces together. The, the pieces shouldn't be fundamentally restricted to any given individual. This is where West, Western academia functions exceptionally well. It's a machinery, right? And yet we don't see that alternative machinery of the writing of Islamic history by Muslim scholars from the Islamic perspective. We have a few individual historians. And so the burden on them is very heavy. And this is one of the things that um, I'm trying to encourage that we need a change. We, we need a collective interaction amongst Muslims of debate, of, of teaching and learning and production of knowledge and um, to create this um, alternative environment that can be um, beneficial for Muslims. Um, and there are many Muslims who are studying in Western academia. And I've said this before, and then via osmosis, you become trained in a particular way, but then they can't write from the Muslim perspective. There's an assumption that the Muslim perspective is somehow something which is backwards or, or, or so forth. And I think we need to change that. So my hope is um, that people like yourselves, um, even if you choose to go into the STEM subjects, that's fine, mm -hmm. but it doesn't mean that um, the learning of history stops. Mm -hmm. um, maybe there could be a good argument to be made that the university circuit is a 19th century institution that might be struggling in the 21st century, which means that the um, democratization of knowledge to some degree with the use of Zoom and these sort of outlets means that we may be able to get information from around the world now and create alternative decentralized spaces. So Muslims do not necessarily have to feel that the only way I'm going to learn history is to be at a university. Um, in the past, in Islam, the institution was the teacher himself. Abu Hanifa is an institution. It's that you went to a person of learning who was an institution. And once you attained as much information for that particular person, you then went to another one. Um, so maybe we need to create a, a culture in which we have multiple peoples who are institutions again in terms of centers of learning. And that's what we need, you know, both male and female. And I think that's important in that sense. Yeah. And in you know, you know, you know, when I, you know, when I initially uh, discussed with Dr. Yakub about the podcast, um, I wanted to do it on Ottoman history, um, mm -hmm. because that's what is, that's what your focus is. But I realized before we can even get to Ottoman history, we have to get to what history is, right? Yeah, right. It's, it's extremely important. So, um, and as a history student, I'm always trying to relearn a lot of these ideas, which have been taught to me as being inherently truth. So um, with that, we'll conclude. Um, Jazakumullah khairan, Dr. Yaqub. Really appreciate it. Um, it was an amazing podcast. Um, inshallah, we will have you soon. Um, sure. If there's any, if there's any, any last words you'd like to share, please go ahead. No, I just want to say thank you very much for having me. I, you know, it's really humbling when, um, when young people like yourself um, contact people like myself. You know, I've been for a particular struggle to get here. It wasn't easy, <laughs> you know, and and I resonate with the struggle when I see younger people like yourself going through that and and people like myself we are available we're trying to help you as much as we can and it's not going to be easy but you know i hope that um i fundamentally believe this in that al-ghazali once said that the, allah ta'ala doesn't put obstacles in the way of the worshiper who wants to worship allah because that's your objective 
So the same thing in the, in the quest of ilm, ilm is ibadat. And I, I fundamentally believe that Allah Ta'ala is not going to restrict you in the learning of your ibadat. Um, you know, when you go through particular moments of learning, so for example, I always joke with my students, be careful when you ask Allah Ta'ala for supper, because he doesn't give it to you. He puts you in situations where you learn it. Mm. That's how you learn sabr. You go through these these tests, and that's how Allah Ta'ala interacted. Yeah. If that's one thing I learned from Malik al-Badri, uh, is that he taught me that Allah Ta'ala tested his anbiya to create their character in this way. You know, and I was very grateful for that last um, snippet of information that he had given me when I'd seen him. And in that sense, your quest for ilm is going to be framed where you're going to have ups and downs because Allah is shaping your character so that you appreciate the ilm that you have. And there is not a single alim, if you go back in history now, that mm. hasn't struggled for the quest of knowledge, for the betterment of the, the Muslim community, for themselves, and for the maintenance of Islam in the memories of Muslims until the future, they haven't gone through some level of struggle. But that's a bliss from Allah Ta'ala. So inshallah, you know, alhamdulillah is a wonderful word. When it's tough, it's a test from Allah, alhamdulillah. And when it's great, it's a gift from Allah, alhamdulillah. So mm -hmm. that's the only thing I can say. And, and both are learning opportunities. And, uh, you know, in reality, yeah. both, are, both of them are blessings as well. Um, That's right. Because the, That's right. Be, be, because the, the gift, you know, the, the provision that's given to you or the iron that's yeah. given to you is a blessing. Yeah. But the hardship that's also given to you is a way to, is a, is a way to expedite your sins uh, yeah. and uh, test your character through that suffering. And, you know, I didn't appreciate that when I was younger. I really didn't. I was very impatient. And it's now when I've got older in life and I look back at those moments and I go, oh, you know what? And they really have taught me to, to be a lot more rounded as a human being, a lot more compassionate, compassionate towards other people, a lot more patient, uh, you know, and, and, and so forth. So, yeah, Allah Ta'ala knows best. <laughs> inshallah, inshallah. Jazakallah khairan. Uh, Thanks for having me. Thank you for everyone for listening. Um, and we will, uh, this was episode two of the Ahmed Khan podcast and look out for episode three. So, Jazakum khairan. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.